right, it is Thursday, August 5th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger. Today, we're going to talk about Bellator 263 ratings. The numbers are in, and they're not as high as a lot of people expected given AJ McKee's dominant win over Patricio Pitbull. We'll go ahead and break down why that happened, as well as how Bellator can kind of shine a spotlight on homegrown talent like AJ McKee more. Then we're going to talk about PFL Legends. Legends, a hospitality group that was born from the New York Yankees and Dallas Cowboys, has not only partnered with the PFL, but also bought a minority stake in the company. We'll break down what that means as well as how PFL can use that to its advantage to try and take that number two spot from Bellator. Then we're going to talk about COVID. Yes, COVID is back and new mandates are being rolled out across the U.S., which could affect UFC, Bellator, and other promotions, specifically the UFC given their NY card in Madison Square Garden coming up in November. We'll break down what that means and how the business can navigate all that. And lastly, we have a small update in the antitrust lawsuit that is important, albeit not what we're looking for in terms of a written order from Judge Bulware. So with that in mind, we got timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, first thing I want to talk about today is the Bellator 263 ratings. Now, these numbers come from Kevin Ioli over at Yahoo, where the UFC card that was on at the same time as the Bellator card averaged about 797,000 viewers, peaking at 1 million, whereas the Bellator card averaged about 85,000 and peaked at 177,000 during the main event. A couple important caveats we need to point out immediately. One, ESPN is in a lot more homes than Showtime. Right, Showtime is a paid for subscription service and not nearly as many people have it as ESPN. These types of number discrepancies happen all the time, especially if you look at even the UFC, right? When they were on Fox, it was 2.2 million, I think was a low end for a UFC card, pretty bad ratings. That's still double what Hall Strickland did on ESPN this past Saturday. That's just because Fox is in more homes. Same situation here, right? ESPN is in way, way more households than Showtime is. So we need to take that into account. Secondly, McKee versus Pitbull did happen after the UFC card was over. So Bellator card peaking at 177,000. That may have also been because the UFC card was wrapped up. I don't believe that was the main reason it spiked. Um, I would imagine it spiked because you had the best fight and a very, very interesting, well-built fight that we'll talk about here in a minute that made all the sense of the world for people to tune into. You had a, other good fights on the Bellator card, but not at the same level as that. So seeing that numbership you know, go up so much, not that surprising. Lastly, is that in the overall scheme of things, that 177 number is not what they hoped for but it's not as bad as it appears, right? It's, it's I think, 111th of the viewership that the UFC did, and Bellator is, is only able to be shown in about 1/8th of the viewership because of the Showtime ESPN discrepancy. So it's still not good, and we'll break that down here, but it's not, you know, whoa, these are dead numbers. Nobody in the world watched it. That's not the case, especially when you factor in people who probably streamed, right? How, how many how many early 20-year-olds do you know that were would probably be all about Bellator watching this fight that own Showtime legally? I don't know that many. I would imagine that the illegal stream rate for this was probably pretty high. Can't say that for certain, but I would wager that's probably a safe bet. So now that we've gotten those caveats out of the way, still not a win for Bellator, right? You had media and and fans going nuts saying, well, this is crazy. You had a ton of media saying, wow, a star is born. AJ McKee, a star is born. All of this. And hyping it up, you had media, some media comparing it to Aldo McGregor and how that went down with just the dominance that McKee displayed. You had a perfect setup to this fight with the Featherweight Grand Prix just going pretty as perfect as it could for these two to meet, and then for McKee to come out and perform like that, be 18 and an O, just you know, assert his dominance, arrive as a star for Bellator. Perfect storm in all regards. And, and the energy there and the crowd was electric. 
you know, I wasn't there personally, but you could tell watching that fight just how crazy it was there, how, how much people felt it. It was a special moment. It certainly was. You cannot deny that. It was a special moment. But ultimately, it it still didn't create this crossover brand that so many people thought it would. And then you had, you know, several people who championed the UFC saying, all these, you know, MMA hipsters saying, Bellator did so well, like, look at these numbers and all this, and media getting pissed off who love that, you know, back and forth, all that fun stuff. It's time we have a frank conversation about the echo chamber that is MMA social networking, so to speak. Gotta understand something. People forget this. If you are a hardcore MMA fan, where you are watching UFC, Bellator, PFL, Combate, although I would probably say Combate is even more hardcore, but, you know, um, Invicta, all these fights, all, all these less promotions. If you're watching multiple promotions, right, you are a, a probably a hardcore fan. Your level of how hardcore you are, well, that, you know, that depends, but you're probably what would be considered a hardcore MMA fan if you're watching multiple promotions, at least to the common viewer. Now, keep in mind, the absolute casual viewer, if you're just watching the UFC, you're probably viewed as a hardcore MMA fan. If you follow, if you know the names of more fighters than just Conor McGregor or Israel Adesanya or John Jones, you're probably hardcore to them. But when you have this tight-knit group of hardcore fans, because that's really what we are, right? If you're interacting on social media, Twitter is a big one, I know, Facebook, places like that, you are, are probably, you know, interacting with a lot of the same people across multiple platforms and all of that, it, it creates a bit of an echo chamber where, yes, this fight felt big for hardcore fans because it was, as many journalists pointed out and many fans pointed out, it was a battle between two really legitimate contenders outside of the UFC, which is rare, right? Patricio Pitbull and AJ McKee could easily hang, in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, with anyone in the top 10 in the UFC, top 10 rankings. Top five, a lot of people would say. That's a rarity to see two prime fighters go at it outside of the UFC. We've seen older fighters or, you know, one fighter kind of make his way to make some money and do all that. But we haven't really seen two prime fighters collide like that in a long time. And so it's one of those things where because of that echo chamber of, oh, it's you've got the number, you know, X ranked in the world and versus the number X ranked in the world. They're both top 10 guys, top five in a lot of people's. And, and now we're going to have them fight. This is going to be big. This is going to get more viewership, but that's not how it works. That's never been how it works from a business perspective, right? So we need to take a step back for a minute and break down a couple of other things I've talked about, about competitive advantage and strategy here, because it's going to help illuminate why those numbers came in as low as they did. So a big factor of competitive strategy is basically prerequisites and, and drivers. And what that means is in order to be competitive, you have to deliver a service or product at a bare minimum to be acceptable, which is the prerequisites. And then you have to have drivers that make your product more desirable than your competitors. So a prerequisite might be cars, right? Let's do that. If I were to tell you that I made cars and I, I'm a car manufacturing company, I'm like a Toyota, but I, let's say OJ cars. If I was to say I'm OJ car company and my cars are super cheap, you, you can buy it, you know, $5,000 or 
fresh off the manufacturing line, comes with all these neat features, you know, everything you could imagine in a Lexus just in this $5,000 car. But then I were to tell you, but oh, by the way, the safety rating is, is zero. If you, if you so much as, you know, fender bender someone, you're probably, your car is just gonna get totaled. You're not gonna buy my car. Doesn't matter how cool I make it, doesn't matter what bells and whistles I put on it. If I say, yeah, if you get in a light crash, where somebody's going like 50 miles per hour and just like T-bones you, you're you're just dead. It's just done. Your car, you're, you're in trouble. You're not going to buy it. It's not going to meet the safety standards for you as a consumer. That's a prerequisite, right? Another famous example one is way back in the day, laundry, right? Laundry detergents used to only get your clothes so clean. And it used to be a competition about how white can you get a particular shirt? And companies would spend money trying to, you know, see how white you could get your shirt if, if it had stains on it. And if you weren't able to get it very white or very clean, you were automatically out because you had about eight or nine different companies all saying like, yep, we can get this spotless. Automatically, you're, you're out. Once, once enough competitors rise to that level, you're out. And that's an example of a driver kind of turning into a prerequisite, which is something we'll talk about here in a bit. But you have to have prerequisites, basically, in order to be competitive whatsoever. For MMA, a lot of people think that the prerequisite to be competitive in the industry is having particular fighters, name value fighters. But that's not really the case. So what is the prerequisite for MMA or what are prerequisites for MMA? I would argue that with a couple of exceptions, which would be a major star going to a middle of nowhere promotion. So then you're getting extra eyes and viewership on it. I would argue that the prerequisite to be considered a major MMA promotion is distribution, broadcast media rights deals not having big name stars. Now, I know a couple of you are going to be like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Doesn't make sense. But think about it for a minute, right? Let's say Conor McGregor went to the middle of nowhere HRMMA in Ohio that I think, I'm not even sure if they do anymore, but I think at one point they streamed on Facebook Live or something for free. If Conor McGregor is fighting that promotion, right, you'll go ahead and watch. And you'll say, what is he doing here? All that stuff. But you'll watch. Maybe, maybe you will end up continuing to watch HR MMA if he never fights there again. But most likely you won't, right? It's still going to be a lot of no-name fighters, still going to be kind of a regional scene for you, all of that. But PFL, when they came on the scene in 2018, they didn't have any big names on their roster. If you followed World Series of Fighting and it carried over, you may have recognized a couple, but really didn't have any big names. So how did they kind of ascend to being in the conversation with Bellator and UFC and One? And we'll talk about One here in a sec. Did it because they had a deal with NBC Sports and they had good promotion and they had a lot of high value production right? That enabled them to be shown on several more screens than, say, a small regional promotion, and it helped them be taken a little bit more seriously. Yes, you had some of those World Series of Fighting fighters moving on to the next stage as well. You had the connections with Ray Cepho, all of that, yes. But ultimately, what turned it into a major promotion was production. Think about Jorge Masvidal's promotion or Cowboys, Cowboy Cerrone's fight promotion. You wouldn't consider them major promotions, right? You'd consider them probably like regional or, or maybe a little bit above regional because of the stars. Sure, you got a little bit of a bump there, but they're not really considered major promotion. But if Cowboy Fights had an ESPN deal where you could watch it on ESPN Plus, you may 
start to consider it more of a major promotion, especially if that was happening with bigger production. If they were, you know, pulling out all the stops, they were showing Snoop Dogg, they were showing, you know, big name fighters on commentary, all that stuff. You may then start to see it as a potential major promotion. You may get the viewership to build that and fan base to build that to that level. That's really what it's all about is production and broadcast deals. Without that, it's harder to reach that next level, right? You can have great fighters. But the only way they get known is if you have enough people watching them and they make enough of a splash. Think about Bellator's undercards. They don't have great fighters on their roster, at least once you get out of the rankings. They have collected enough fighters and they have enough promotion at this point and they have everything going on that they, they've they used that to boon themselves as the number two promotion. But imagine that they Imagine that they didn't have AJ McKee or Patricio Pitbull. Would you still consider them number two? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Might go with one or PFL now with the way things have shaken out. But would you consider them a major promotion? Yes. I would say yes. They'd still be that big name that they've built at this point. It, it's much more about distribution and things early on to break into it as a prerequisite. How well you do and whether you stay as being considered a major promotion or a lesser tier, that's that's after the prerequisite. But the main prerequisite, in my opinion, is distribution, distribution, distribution. You have to have a good way to distribute the product. You have to have a strong broadcast partner major network has to be backing you in some form or fashion. It can be on Showtime. That's fine. Especially with what Bellator has built. But it has to be something like CBS pushing that marketing, pushing that production, really pushing it going home. NBC, same thing. Before PFL went to ESPN, now they're with ESPN. Great. But if PFL, let's say, dropped off and went to Access TV, Still going to be a major work? Well, they've been around long enough now and they've got enough names. Maybe they're considered that. Yeah, sure. But it's going to be harder for them. If they come out in 2018 on Access TV, are they going to be considered a major player? Or even the potential of a major player? I would I would argue no. Nowhere near possible. They needed a bigger name broadcast partner to get that going. So that's the prerequisite. Now for a competitive advantage, right? We've talked about this before between scarcity or cost dynamics. With fighting, it's all about scarcity. It's all about having a roster of the best fighters in the world or the perception of a best roster in the world, right? We'll never really know because they're not going to do cross-promotional fights between the UFC and, and Bellator and one and all that. That's not going to happen. Closest thing we've seen to that is Ryzen and Bellator. But you're not going to be able to ever really know how how two full rosters stack up to each other. At least so we think. So then it becomes perception. And based on the perception where everybody ranks UFC's fighters, again, they hold such a high number that it's not shocking that they are ranked number one by a long shot. And then they have all the production deals and you have major news outlets covering them and everything else going on under the sun. Their competitive advantage, though, is looked at as being the best based on their roster and their production quality, right? They're flying all over the world, having events everywhere. They're doing massive pay-per-views. They're doing crazy amounts of production. That goes a long way in terms of making you seem like a bigger promotion than you are. It's not as much about the fighters. One championship, we've talked about their financials, how much they spend on marketing. It's insane, but it's paid off in the sense where despite those financials being head scratching, they are considered a major org. They do now have 
you know, widely recognized fighters in Demetrius Johnson through that trade and Ong Lan Song, right? They, they have a much wider base than they would have if they'd kind of just stayed as one FC and just stayed doing what they were doing. It, it plays a major factor. So circling this back to Bellator's ratings, Bellator has the prerequisite of having enough of a powerhouse distribution here to back them that they can be competitive. But their competitive advantage isn't really there, right? They can't compete with the UFC because to the casual fan, they don't have the perception of having the best fighters in the world. To the casual fan, they are barely recognizable. What's Bellator? Oh, I think I saw that on MTV2 once. Or Spike. Or Paramount when I had cable. Or, oh yeah, I saw that on Showtime. Yeah, it's some fighting. Cool. But it's not the UFC. Instantly, they are not viewed as anywhere near close to the UFC in the most casual fans' minds. But that trickles down too, right? When you talk about all the people who are saying, oh, look, the UFC crushed Bellator in the ratings. Why are they saying that? Well, take a look over at WWE and AEW, right? WWE for wrestling is probably in the fight of its life since WCW. And I'm not saying that AEW is anywhere near close to knocking off WWE, but same type of thing where there are so many WWE fans who look at AEW and are like, man, get out of here. You're nothing. Like you're just you're just trying to be a knockoff. And there's a lot of similarities there. Where a lot of WWE guys went to AEW. It was founded by an old WWE guy. And a lot of people look at that and say, man, like, yeah, you got some of the best wrestling in the world over here, and you know, screw WWE and all that. And it becomes this war. And AEW is actually getting close to the point where they, they're starting to challenge some of those ratings. But when they first started. They were nowhere near that. And how did they do that? Well, in AEW's case, they got a lot of wrestlers that were released from WWE so that the scarcity was there. They got a greater scarcity advantage. Bellator, that's very unlikely to happen. They've picked up a couple with Anthony Johnson and Yoel Romero, but UFC is not going to release tons and tons. And even if they did, they're so far ahead in the perception game at this point. It's almost irrelevant. Bellator would have to put on phenomenal shows, but also have the marketing and the production to back it up. To even think of challenging the UFC. And that's where, for this particular fight, Bellator failed, in my opinion. They didn't promote it enough and they didn't market it enough outside of the hardcore fan base. They tried somewhat, but the only way that you're going to truly get a leg up on the UFC is if you can convince more casual fans or just Showtime viewers in general, right? Which you have to know the profile of who buys Showtime and break down that customer segment because that's very important to this. And it's breaking that down and saying, hey, you should be compelled to watch this fight. Why? Why should I watch this fight? Well, because these are two of the best featherweights in the world. Oh, well, okay. Have they fought anybody in the UFC? No, they haven't. Well, then how can they be two of the best? The UFC is the best. That's how the conversation goes. It's... A problem that Bellator will never overcome it using the strategy they currently have. AJ McKee and Patricio Pitbull are, without a doubt, two fantastic featherweights. And I would love to see them compete against some of the UFC's best to see who comes out on top. That'd be amazing. But it doesn't change the fact that 
the perception gap is so wide in the mind of the consumer that it doesn't matter what you come out with. They're, they're entrenched. They're so far entrenched. It's not going to, not going to help. You can't beat them just by having the best fighters. You have to have something else. You have to have better marketing. You have to have better production. You have to have something that gives you the competitive advantage because overall, again, the scarcity lies in the UFC. UFC still has the majority of the best ranked fighters in the world. So what, what is, what is your competitive advantage as Bellator? You have the second best roster in the world. That's great, but you're never going to get the same viewers and ratings as the first. And the problem there is that it leads to these types of ratings for what would have been a major moment for the promotion, which should have been a major moment for the promotion with more casual viewers. If you had casual viewers tuning into that fight, they would have been much more excited about Bellator and more willing to watch Bellator following what happened there. And sure, you had highlights. You had people saying AJ McKee versus Pitbull was trending number one. Worldwide, yeah, it was trending more than um, UFC was on Twitter. Great. That that doesn't equate to actual viewership from people outside of that MMA circle that we talked about. Go look at AJ McKee's Twitter and Instagram accounts. I think for they've been going up, but I think for Twitter he's got like seven thousand followers, and for Instagram he's around 100,000, it might be a little bit over 100,000 now. To put that in reference to UFC fighters, I think Chase Hooper has like 137,000 followers. He has more than AJ McKee. That gives you a much better idea of casual fan bases on social media apps. It's not an end-all be-all metric, but it's an important one, especially for the younger demographic. It's not surprising that these ratings were lower than a lot of people thought. You get caught in the echo chamber. You're a hardcore MMA fan. You see that moment. You think, oh, this is it. They're going to break out. But that's not the case. Didn't have the distribution. Didn't have the production and the promotion they needed to really capture enough eyes to elevate the key to where he really should be at this point. And that's why you end up with those ratings. Yes, they have some of the best featherweights in the world. That's the prerequisite, though. Right? That's that's part of the prerequisite is they have enough production that they're up there. But the best best fighters, sorry, let me phrase that. Production is a prerequisite. The best fighters are the drivers. And that means when you're looking at just that as a competitive advantage, UFC beats them every time, every single time. That's why Bellator needs something else. What that is. I don't know. Tournaments were nice, but they're still not pulling in the ratings they need to. So they've got to go back to the drawing board and find a different driver that's different enough from their competitors that people are willing to choose them over the UFC. And that's hard to do. That's why the Monospitney trial is going on. It's why, you know, the UFC chose the path that they did to get all those fighters is because having that scarcity is worth more as a competitive advantage than just about anything else. Huge reason why they did that. But Bellator has to find something else other than fighter scarcity if they want to actually compete with the UFC. That's why you have PFL doing smart cage and the tournament style and the points and season, all that. People scratch your head at it, I get it, but they're, they're trying something new because you have to. You can't compete with the UFC on fighters. It will never work. You'll always get people saying, well, they're great, but they're not as good as, you know, the best UFC fighters. AJ McKee's amazing, but he couldn't be Volkanovski. He couldn't be Max Holloway. You can't win that fight. You can't. That's why the viewership was low. Didn't do enough promotion and marketing and didn't have enough of a competitive advantage outside of fighters to garner the viewership that a lot of people were expecting.
All right, the next thing I want to talk about here is the deal between the PFL and Legends. So Legends is a hospitality company that was founded in 2008 by the New York Yankees and Dallas Cowboys. Yes, that's, you heard correctly, the Cowboys and the Yankees each own just over 20% of Legends. Um, and, and recently, Legends itself was, I believe, bought by Sixth Street. 51% was bought by Sixth Street, so they're the major, majority owner, which is Sixth Street is an investment firm, for those of you that don't know. But they have now partnered with the PFL to help do some of the, you know, bid process for venues, um, help with the ticketing, hospitality, all that sort of thing, as well as they've bought a minority stake in the promotion itself. So I'm taking a couple quotes here from article that's on Yahoo Sports, but I believe it's from Sportico itself, where Legend COO Mike Tomlin said, MMA is a global sport and the PFL has global aspirations. We are a global platform. There is an abundance of MMA talent and demand. The PFL is an opportunity where we see a lot of upside in the right segment. We'll come back to that because that is that is important, the right segment there. Um, it goes on to say they see an opportunity to move beyond just an event-based model and create a 365-day-a-year business with a location-based attraction, uh, then highlighting the star, which is the Cowboys' $1.5 billion training facility, includes tours, private events, all that. So it looks like what Legends is trying to do here is, yes, take over all of the ticketing, take over you know, kind of the venue hosting, all of that. But then they're also really looking to turn this into a facility type thing, whether that's the PFL is going to be hosted in a specific facility, kind of like how you've got the star with the Cowboys. And then you have like, you know, special training seminars with PFL stars, or you have special private events where you can go and, and tour, you know, the PFL set and everything else and meet, you know, commentators and things like that. They're, they're trying to make it an experience. Um, you've had a couple of wrestling promotions do this, right? Uh, I forget exactly who did Universal Studio. I want to say it was WCW or TNA, um, but similar type thing where they, they wanted to make it kind of an event you could sell tickets for and it would be more of an open attraction to see so that even if you're not a hardcore MMA fan, Maybe you're in this area and you say, oh, man, like, look, here's this cool, not ride, but, you know, here's this cool taping going on. Well, yeah, I want to see this or rather here's a cool live event that's being hosted. And yeah, you know what? I'm in this area. Sure. Let's check it out. It, it's that type of deal. They're, they're trying to expand through facilities and through ticketing options and special VIP experiences they're trying to elevate the PFL's brand. The right segment is interesting. Um, and keep in mind also, Legends has, according to this article, Yahoo, deep expertise in sponsorships, hospitality, and event management with clients, including Real Madrid, University of Notre Dame, LA28, SoFi Stadium, Wimbledon, Manchester City, all of that. And it's a merchandise partner for the UFC. Also important. But it, it's really just taking away having the PFL negotiate with different venues, right? Like we saw they had to go to Atlantic City and then uh, they were doing the New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's Eve shows, they did the Mad Madison Square Garden shows. I'm sure they'll still travel a little bit, but really it's it's taking away that negotiation where it's PFL negotiating with the venue itself and working out all the details to instead bring that all under one umbrella in the PFL and have that integration. It's it's a makes sense, right? From a vertical integration standpoint that you would want the show and the venue where you're hosting the show to all be together if you could. That's what this is doing. It's taking away that cost by rolling it all into one. And having the event company, which is Legends in this case, kind of front part of the bill. And I'm assuming they're hoping to get it back through their minority stake. So it's a good deal for the PFL. 
I would say. And it makes a lot of sense. The only question is whether or not the returns are going to be warranted the investment. As we've talked about here, right? They've had to go through several rounds of funding. You've had several celebrities and and famous superstars, uh, you know, across many different industries and areas, whether that be, you know, the Washington Wizards owner or Dr. Dre or who have you, Kevin Hart, all investing in the PFL. Wiz Khalifa doing the cold opens. You've got a lot of celebrity endorsement here. You've got $178 million through funding, but it's still very much a startup scenario. And like many other startups, they're selling equity here. They're basically saying, look, we can't set up an exclusive agreement with you guys and pay you all this money. But instead, what we can do is you can buy a minority stake in us. You get equity. In exchange for that equity, we'd like you to, you know, handle all the ticketing and you still get monies and, and revenue from that that would go straight to Legends as, as part of a deal that you would even if they weren't getting equity. But in order to get that exclusiveness and get kind of that help in the venue space and having some of that those costs being fronted by Legends, the trade-off is equity. Happens all the time in the startup world. That's what VCs are all about, right? You go, you do your pitch deck, you say, hey, Here's my amazing product. We've got a couple of developers working on it. Here's a basic MVP where it kind of works, but we really want it to be better. And they say, you know what? We'll give you a team of engineers, or rather we'll give you the funding to hire a team of engineers and build out your product to your heart's desire. But we want, you know, 40, 50% of the company equity. So that, that way, when you do become super successful and you're making millions off these things, we get a large share of it. That's what this is. Stock options, right? Same thing. So makes a lot of sense. Not some crazy deal where it's going to change things, right? You're not going to have shakeups in PFL management or you may have some slight design changes with where, you know, the, the sets are and where, you know, production values are focused, I guess. You could have that, but I really don't think so. I think instead it's going to be that you'll have clear-cut venues enhanced fan experiences, um, maybe similar to what they did back in, I want to say it was 2018 with the like meet and greet and the kind of thing that you see in UFC multiple times, right? The, the parking lot events and all of that could be those type of things that Legends helps pay for, helps set up. But it's not going to be a major shakeup in any way, shape or form with the PFL. It's a good deal. The only... Caveat, again, comes back to because it's equity for Legends End, if they don't get the return they like, you know, how long is the deal for? Will they drop PFL if it becomes an issue? That's all unknown right now. But it's a common startup technique. Makes sense to do. You can only do it so many times, though, if you're the PFL, too. You only own, you only have so much equity to give away, right? You have 100% of company start giving away 15, 20, all this only have a finite amount that you can give away. So it's something that the PFL is not going to be able to repeat for other partnerships and continue to do long-term unless they want to essentially give away the rest of the company. And then things would change drastically. But right now it's a small minority stake giveaway in exchange for Enhanced facility treatment, venue, location help, all of that stuff, experience, VIP experience, all of that. So we'll see if it pays off for them. Because again, costs are high, paying out a million dollars a year for your champions, and ratings haven't been the best, especially with a year off, and and your your star signees not performing the way that you would hope. We'll see how everything goes. Still, still got the playoffs coming up. We'll we'll see how those ratings are and, and what comes of it. All right. Next, time to talk about our fun old friend COVID. So if you're like me, uh, you're pretty pissed off that COVID cases are now just way, way up all around the world. Specifically in the U.S., you're starting to look at more employer mandates, more government mandates at both the state, local level where they can. um, And it's changing things up. 
And we're not going into the moral side of it or the political. We're, we have to get a little political here simply because we are talking about mandates from government entities, but we're not going to go down the road here of, you know, all of that stuff. Instead, we're going to focus on how this affects the promotions. So an article came out not that long ago, I think yesterday, talking about how WWE is hosting their SummerSlam event in Vegas, and they're expecting it to be shut down at this point. At least some company sources truly believe it's going to be shut down and they're, they're making contingency plans. That gives you an idea of where cases are probably headed. I would say that the data backs that up um, and that as you see more and more hospitals being filled and more states kind of looking at each other and saying, well, okay, we've got to start doing something about this. Mandates are coming out about vaccinations and this affects promotions like the UFC or Bellator or who have you in the sense where one, if vaccinations are now required in particular states in order to be in certain venues, aka Madison Square Garden requiring proof of vaccination, your fighters have to be vaccinated. Not only do your fighters have to be vaccinated, the cornermen, the fans, everybody. If you are an employee, that may be an important employee, like a COO or CFO or, or director of you know fighter ops, you've got to be vaccinated. Everybody that enters the building or enters the venue needs to be vaccinated needs to show proof of vaccination. When you have a lot of fighters in particular resisting doing that, as well as some other people, that starts to limit where you can host shows. And it starts to hurt your gate, where even if you as a company get all your fighters together, get all your employees together, you say, we got to get this done, we get it done. How many fans do not show up because they refuse to get vaccinated? Right? It's not rocket science to look at the MMA fan base as a whole and see that there's probably a large chunk that will refuse to get vaccinated and won't come to your shows. Specifically people that would have normally come to your shows. So it drops your, your gate a little bit for the UFC, not as big a deal again, because we've talked about their longstanding broadcast deals, but for other promotions could start to become an issue. So, an interesting thing was said by Dana White to, I believe, uh, Farah Hunan of MMA Junkie, where she asked, you know, what happens with COVID cases rising? Are you going to require people to get vaccinations, all this? And Dana's come out and said, nope, not going to force fighters to get vaccinated. It's not my thing. I'm not going to tell them what to do with their body, et cetera, et cetera. One, he really can't in so many words. I mean, he could, but especially with the antitrust lawsuit, right? He's not, he's their employer, but they're independent contractors. You could lay out, yes, you've got to be vaccinated in order to work with us. That's fine. But this is an easy way for him to not have to deal with that. Not saying he would anyway, right? If he was true employer, employee relationship, he would mandate that regardless. I don't think he would, but he could point to that if he needed to. And say, well, independent contractors, right? But that being said, he did mention that no matter what happens, right? He got caught off guard by COVID before. No matter what happens here on out, and that actually might have been the Pat McAfee show where he said, oh, yeah, it was the Pat McAfee show, I stand corrected, where he, um, he essentially said, you know, I was caught off guard by COVID initially, but now I'm good to go. Where you know shows are happening, we got this. We're all good. What he's talking about there is is risk mitigation, right? Same same thing WWE is doing, where they're talking about moving to the Thunderdome if SummerSlam does get canceled or need to be rescheduled, and they're talking about going back to the Thunderdome, which is their facility in Florida. Same thing here. I'm sure Dana White has a plan so that if events start to get canceled because of COVID or fights that he really needs to happen, can't happen because of COVID. They'll just go back to the apex. And he probably is all set and ready to go that within a week's notice, if he needs to pull the trigger, he can do that. Because you're probably going to have at least a runway of a week or so. I can't imagine 
you get to Saturday morning and then by Sunday or Saturday evening, they're, you know, saying, nope, you can't be here. There'd be some indications of that. At least a couple of days, but I'm thinking probably about a week runway. You'd be able to see the writing on the wall. So he now has a backup plan, a contingency plan that is set, ready to go. UFC is going to be fine. If Madison Square Garden gets canceled, it's going to be at the Apex. Yes, we were supposed to have the card in London, right? On September 4th, I think, something like that. Yeah, it's not happening now. It's going back to Las Vegas. It's going to be at the Apex. That's just what they're going to do. And similarly to the height of the pandemic, or rather when Las Vegas was at least still closed, they were still able to have shows at the Apex. They're going to be fine. For other promotions like Bellator, PFL, then things get more dicey. Then you're looking at setting up bubbles, getting government approval, all of that, which they've done and they managed to do successfully, but that's much harder to pivot if things start to shift now. You need more than a week to kind of get an agreement together with a bubble set in place and government approval if you know a state or local government ups a mandate to say like, no, we can't have gatherings of more than 20 people. Well, okay, now we've got to kind of work with the government to figure out a way around that, all of that. And and it's not going to be that bad again. There's no way it will be, I don't think. Um, but it's going to be harder for other promotions to make that pivot. Really, the only thing that's going to affect the UFC, and I would assume also affect Bellator to some extent, although Bellator has been better from what I've heard in terms of actually keeping a bubble. I know PFL has been very good about keeping a bubble. Um, is, is fighters are going to have trouble. We're going to see a lot more COVID dropouts. We're going to see, you know, things like Michael Chandler saying, I'm not going to be vaccinated in New York by November 6th, so maybe you have to push the fight. It's going to be much harder. Without Dana mandating, yes, we need to do vaccines and forcing fighters to show proof of vaccination, it's going to be harder to keep a card intact. We saw this past weekend how badly that card got treaded up. A lot of those fights were withdrawn because of COVID. And and that's important to remember. And with this new variant, it's gonna it's more transmissible, it's gonna get worse. So it's one of those things where cards may not be at desirable to the fans, but UFC will still get them done. And again, from the UFC stand point of view, unless you had like multiple title fights drop out like where you had Amanda Nunes drop out, that's a big deal. But beyond that, they could care less. They'll they'll throw together a bunch of contender series or local guys who will test negative. And they'll throw it on an eight-person card and they'll sell it as pay-per-view. They just want to up- uphold the ESPN deal. They could care less about the quality of the card for the most part. And that's just how it is. So, yes, there will be some effects. Unfortunately for us as fans, we're probably going to see a lot of fights we want to see get dropped off last minute. But other than that, not looking at too much here. It's not going to be crazy lockdowns or anything like that. UFC will at least continue. And I would assume Bellator and PFL could make the shift. It would just be longer. They probably need a month or so. But fights aren't going anywhere. So don't worry about that. Um, And yeah. It's, it's all about risk mitigation, having that contingency backup. That is one thing the UFC does extremely well. The fact they were able to pull off Fight Island and you know, be the first back during the pandemic, I am sure they have multiple contingencies in place should something happen. So don't, don't expect them to go away anytime soon. Fights are going to still keep happening. So last thing we need to talk about for today's episode is an update in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. So... It's not the written decision that we've been hoping for. Nope, couldn't couldn't be that. It's been years upon years. Maybe one day we'll get it. But instead, it is a... So if you look back at April, Zufa asked Judge Boulware to take under consideration a separate ruling that applied to the lawsuit. It was a different antitrust lawsuit case, and there was an order 
that had been made on that case that Bo- Judge Boward did take into consideration, had that you know call with everybody on there to say he was going to review it and take that into account when he wrote his order. And then we had that whole thing happen back in April. So four months later, that ruling has been vacated where basically a higher court said, no, yeah, that ruling's out. Now we're going to go ahead and kick that. So now the plaintiffs, which are the fighters, are asking the judge to take that into consideration with his ruling and his written order, which means we're just back to where we were before April. And if Judge Bulwer had just written the order before April and all this happened, uh, we wouldn't even be talking about this. But he is as slow as molasses, and thus we are talking about it right now. So not a major update whatsoever. Basically just undoes what we talked about in April. Uh, so if you watch that episode where we talked about the updates to the antitrust lawsuit case, and there were some ramifications, well, they're all out the window now. We're just back to square one, waiting for that written order. No indication of when we'll get it. And again, even when we do, it's still going to be appeals in a long time to, to get anything moving there. So hang tight. Uh, at least it you know keeps it on our radar, I guess. But it's just getting ridiculous at this point. So if you see anything about UFC antitrust lawsuit for this week, it's it's just pretty much disregarded is what I'm going to say at this point because it's, you know, not going to matter. We're going to forget about it. And in 10 months, we're finally going to get something. So, yeah, hang in there, guys. Hang in there. All right, guys. Well, that is the end of this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the like button, subscribe, bell notification. If you've already done all that, share it to all your friends. Appreciate you guys, as always. If you're listening on Spotify, Anchor, Podcast Addict, Apple, what have you, Love you guys as well, making sure to get this episode done um, on time. If you have any questions regarding what I went over this week, make sure to hit me up in the YouTube comment section or on Twitter. Um, Let me know, because obviously with the strategy portion, kind of went a couple of different avenues and then circled it all back together. But, you know, a lot to kind of dive into there. If I wasn't clear enough, let me know because I do need that feedback. I want to make sure that I'm driving these ideas in in a way that you guys can understand them. So um, let me know, because I know sometimes it can be a little bit confusing, and especially the way I go, like like a rabbit chasing a carrot. I I get it. I I understand that. I'm I'm self-aware enough to know that I do that. So please let me know all your feedback. Uh, Love you guys as always. And until next week, Get that money.